for singing those last two songs. I will try to speak, though I have no guarantee of being able to do so. I've really enjoyed a lot of the questions you've had. I want to address, too, about our topic of sowing seeds specifically. Um, one of the questions that... Uh, well, that's going to mess you up. All right. All right. Um, how do I... It seems like I've been in the relationship so long that I, I, it's hard for me to get around to the gospel... And, and, I'm, and the longer I go, the harder time I have sort of bringing it up. I feel a little bit ashamed. Um, I definitely know that struggle. And um, the, uh, I, I, this is what I think happens a lot of times. If you, have some, uh, if you have some people sense about you, you sense that the relationship, if you bring up spiritual things with, with most people... That's sort of another level or depth. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it seemed like I, I'm not sure if I had permission to do that. And I, I could feel the stuckness and wasn't sure about that. And, and part of why I was stuck was I was in the tell mode. I had something to tell my friend. And my hesitation, I think, was I'm not sure if I really have permission to do that. And finally it dawned on me, duh, Get in the ask mode. And so something like, um, we've been friends for six months and I have, I have known nothing about your spiritual background. Tell me about that. And the attitude of which you do it is friendship and curiosity because it's your friend. I want to know this about you. And you have to be sure that you are communicating friendship. You're not setting the trap so that you can pounce. Or else they probably will sense that if they have some people sense about them. You're just a friend. You're just finding out about them. Anyway, that was like a, oh, I can do that. I can ask questions like that. This is a generic question. And then uh, another question was, what do you, what, how do you keep loving enemies? Uh, people that uh, you've tried to share with and, and, and you're really not sure what to do with them. And when I think of this, I think about uh, there's sort of a spectrum of enemies. Uh, I told some of you, I think, at, at some of the meals that uh, when I, after I became a Christian, I'd go home and my family loved to tell funny Seth stories, as we called them, stupid things I did, especially in high school in my first two years in college. And about half the time, those were funny to me, and about, the half, about half the time I was like, ugh. If you were in the breakfast talk, my box four was changing to not a good area. Um, so uh, if that's the situation, what, what's going on? Well, my box four, if my, my anger is saying there's something about self and my needs here, and that's stupid. I don't want to do that. The cross tells me I'm intact as a person, whether I feel like it or not. Because of that, Lord, help me get back in the game with my mom, my dad, my brothers, and my sisters. And a lot of times what that meant for me to repent and have faith was to laugh with them at myself. Because even in that, you're sowing some seeds about what it is to be a Christian. Now, there are some people on the other end of that spectrum. I don't want your Jesus. I don't want the gospel. I don't want to hear about it. Uh, and maybe even worse. So you just back way off of the tell thing or the ask thing. And you are focused on friendship and loving them and thoughtful deeds. Uh, and whatever you can think, uh, uh, words of appreciation, something you can bring, the, uh, a book on a subject they like. Uh, if they like donuts, you're bringing donuts to work every once in a while. You know, you're just trying to find those little things that you, what, that what and then your attitude says, um, really, no matter how you treat me, I'm going to be your friend. So just, just a couple of thoughts so you can think of that. Um, we've talked about sowing seeds and lots of different kinds of seeds you can use. And we've talked about uh, in, um, in the parable, of course, there, weren't any, there wasn't any need for weeding and gardening and hoeing and all that stuff. That really wasn't the purpose of the parable. But as you're working with people and relating to people, there are lots of things that you just are sort of called upon to do. 
uh, weeding and fertilizing and mulching, sometimes pruning, answering questions, trying to uh, deal with stereotypes, a lot of things we talked about yesterday. But eventually what we're in the long haul trying to do is, is grow gardens, people, and a lot of people. And uh, so let me, I want to, again, like the other day, just give you a couple little things to think about and then try to give you a lot of examples. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, a lot of times when I hear people like me talk about salt, they, the application they think of is changing the, the, the culture. And that's one application of this. But the thing I just did about enemies uh, has an application here with salt, too. In some situations, you're fighting for a friendship, even if the enemy on this end doesn't really care about your friendship. That's preservative. That's salt. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, this is interesting. I like this verse, too. Different metaphor of light. And what Jesus, notice, notice how Jesus uh, words this. You are the light of the world. He states that as a fact. Now, I know about me, and probably for you at times you're thinking, but I didn't seem like such a little candle. And oftentimes it seems that way to me. It may seem that way to you. I think it's because we compare ourselves to other lights in the room. I don't know if I can do anything. And so he said, you know, um, that is... A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So whether it feels like you have just this little candlelight or not, it's still burning. There's a light there. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. The only way you can hide your light, he's saying here, is if you do it intentionally. I'm going to hole up in my room. I'm not leaving my dorm room. I'm not leaving my apartment. Because what he says is, as soon as you're around people, that light's on. That seemed like it's such a little candle. But in the metaphor of light and darkness, you have just entered a dark world. And even a one candle flame in a dark world, you're really happy about. See, it doesn't matter if you think there's a light there. He just says it's shining. In the dark world, in the same way, let your light so shine before men. Don't hole up in your room. I don't have anything to do. Let it shine that they may see your good deeds. Praise your Father in heaven. Um, when I think about building relationships with people, um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 12 is a great passage of Scripture. You sort of get the inside scoop on how Paul did this with Thessalonica. Uh, and there's a lot of tenderness in that passage. Uh, mother with her... A uh, mother with her nursing child and a father encouraging, uh, shaping, um, and, and his heart, what he was and what he wasn't. He's describing the, a lot of the nature of the relationship that he built with those folks. That's good interest, uh, interesting uh, information there. When I think about this, I think of five words. Interest, ask, listen, understand, and explore. Instead of focusing at the initial part of evangelism on telling, unless you are a very unusual Christian that are, that's very effective of that, there may be 5% of you in this room. The other 95% are likely to live under a tremendous amount of guilt if you think that's how it's supposed to be done. So for the other 95% of us, let me give you some good news. Evangelism is a personal business. It is a relational venture. And you already know intuitively that when somebody tell, tries to tell you something you don't want to hear, you don't like it. That's just human. That's our pride at work. The flip side of that is, aren't you, aren't you interested when somebody asks you questions? Aren't you engaged when they ask you about you? Tell me your name. Where are you from? What year are you? What are you studying? What would you like to do when you get out? People like that. 
You build relationships. Interest, ask, listen, understand, explore. James 1.19. Notice, my beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak. For all you introverts in the room, underline that, that phrase. And then Proverbs 18.2. We do have a few married folks in here. We have a few married husbands. If you get nothing else from this talk, get Proverbs 18.2. This is law number one in being a husband. I know of no former law before this one. A fool takes pleasure, takes no pleasure in understanding the thoughts of the other person, the feelings of the other person, exploring the other person, but delights in expressing his opinion. He can't wait to pull the dump truck in and display his glorious wisdom with you. Now, I have made this mistake lots of times when I was younger. It's taken me a long time to learn the importance of this with my wife, with my friends, the people I work with, and especially with lost people. It's very easy to ask, how was your day? Oh, it was kind of rough. Tell me about it. What was rough about it? Let me tell you something about it. Uh, that sounds really frustrating. Yeah, how do you deal with stuff like that? Interest, ask, curious. Good stuff to do with your wife. Recommend it highly. Good stuff to do with people you're trying to reach. Uh, these are on the inside of your handout. This is what I think of as diagnostic questions. Uh, about a third of the way down the page. What are important things to you? This is when you're sort of moving that next level of conversation. Uh, what are some of the important lessons you've learned about life? What are some of your greatest joys? What have some, some of your hardest pains or heartaches? And you are listening. And you are curious. You are, you are exploring. You're letting them speak. And then small acts of thoughtfulness. And again, if you think, I don't know if I can do anything for Jesus. Well, you can do this one. Whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Okay. Let's, let me get into some uh, tennis and pizza stories. When we moved to Irvine, uh, we didn't know anybody. Uh, but where we lived is a highly professional community. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the, you know, the wealthy and the successful and have it all together people. Uh, when I first moved there, I thought, why did we move here? Do these people need Jesus? And after about three months, I knew I was in the right place. Um, the second night that I was on the job, well, I realized where we live, tennis was a high value. So I was playing, I was trying to establish my contact base, my pools of non-Christians. So I was playing basketball on Saturday morning with a group of about 25 guys that played at a local park. And I would write down, um, their, as soon as I got back to my car, I'd put, take out a piece of paper that said basketball, Saturday basketball. And I would try to write down the names of the guys I could remember and something about that I, you know, somebody went to Stanford, somebody's an attorney, you know, that kind of thing. So that the next Saturday, I would not be relying only on my memory, which as some of you know, not a good idea. Uh, well, I had a, a Tuesday tennis night group. And it turned out, interestingly enough, that there were about 25, all the men were attorneys, and all the women worked in the attorney field, either as attorneys or legal assistants. And then there was, uh, so the first, I'm, we've been in Irvine two days. I go over Tuesday night hoping just to meet some people. There were seven people waiting to play mixed doubles. Huh, what a, what a coincidence, right? So I walked up and I said, hey, do you guys need another person? They said, well, we probably do. It's almost seven. Looks like, all right, I'm Seth. Who are you guys? They gave me, now all they knew about me was my name was Seth. No questions, nothing else. We got out there and play mixed doubles for an hour and a half. And they say, hey, we'd like to go over to Lamppost Pizza and get some pizza and beer afterwards. You want to go? We'd love to. So uh, we drive over, drive over to Lamppost Pizza. We're sitting around, the eight of us around this two picnic tables put together. And they're all talking legal stuff and they're weak and stuff like that. And I'm just kind of trying to, names and faces and, who works where, and you know, all that kind of 
so that when I get back in my car, I can write down on my Tuesday you know, night tennis. And after about 15 minutes, one of them says, well, Seth, what do you do? And I, I said, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, everybody went. <laughs> the people to my left went like this. The people to my right went like this. A couple of people across from me looked down. <laughs> I mean, <it's, laughs> and one of them said, in that eerie silence, said, of a church? <laughs> I said, well, well, sort of. And they died laughing. You know, pastor, sort of a pastor of a church. And, and well, well, what's the name of it? I said, well, I really don't have one yet. And they, a pastor without a church? Oh, that's great. Said, they thought I was cracking a joke. And they said, no, really, what, what's the name of the church? And I said, well, I really don't have one. And they realized that being serious. And when I said, well, what are you going to do, start one? I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were so, here are these attorneys. And it was like, it was like I had outfoxed them in court, you know. Like, they didn't know what to do with that. And one of them said, well, I've never heard of that. I said, well, sort of like being an entrepreneur except in the field of religion. And they all went, oh, okay, now I understand. I get it, you know. And they said, well, you know what? We do this every Tuesday. You ought to come back. I said, I'd love to. Now, think about this. What happened that it made sense to those seven people to invite me back? Was it because I was such a stellar tennis player? I was sowing seeds listening for about 15 minutes and learning about these folks. And then when they were asking me questions, I was trying to engage them at their level and style of relating in the moment. In Paul's parlance, I was being a Gentile, a Greek to the Greek, a Gentile to the Gentiles. So the next week I went back and there were just four of us that night there was one lady that had not been there during week one. We, go, we play tennis. We go to the, the, the pizza place. And this was the time in our country where we had two humongous televangelist scandals that everybody that didn't go to church knew all about. And um, so the, the, the gal, Kathy, that had not been there for my first week, we sit down and she go, and she is so disgusted with what she sees with these two guys. And this hypocrisy and the scandal and, and how could people follow this kind of baloney? And, and she was going on and the lady across from her who had been there for my first week sort of kind of chuckled and said, uh, Kathy, uh, got the, and she pointed, got the pastor here. <laughs> and she looked at me like this and I went, <laughs> And then she said, oh, Seth, please don't tell me you're one of those guys that believes that Jesus is the only way. And if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. I have never understood how any rational person could believe that. Have you ever seen those Southwest commercials, airlines, where you're on the plane and somebody does something stupid and the tagline at the end goes, want to get away? <laughs> I could film one of those commercials. I had about three seconds to throw up a quick prayer and say, well, you know, and now, now remember, the relationship is also what you're sowing here. So um, I said, well, you know, Kathy, what you, what you have just described are really two profound questions that a lot of people struggle with. When I went to seminary, I struggled with both those questions, too. I had to do a lot of study on those. And she was sort of perplexed by that. And she said, well, what two questions are they? <laughs> I said, well, one of them is, is there really something unique about Christianity that you won't find in any other world religion? And is there really something unique about Jesus Christ that you won't find in any other world religious uh, leader? I said, those are tough questions. And I, I, had to do, I, I had to do a lot of study in seminary on those things. And she said, well, what did you discover? You see a change in attitude? How come? So I said, well, um, what I discovered was is that every other 
world religion starts with mankind and tries to figure out how can I reach up to this something up here, whatever it happens to be. God, God's nirvana, or the better life, or however you want to define it. But you start here and you work your way up. Christianity says the exact opposite. It says if you start with man, when you look at what the Bible looks at man, we are running as far away from God as we can be. We don't want anything to do with God. We just want to live our lives the way we want to. It's God who takes the initiative to reach down to us, sometimes to grab us by the back of the collar and drag us to himself because of his love for us that we see the most in the cross. She went, ah. She said, well, what about the second question? I said, well, there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people that think that Jesus Christ was a good teacher, good moral man, example for us all to follow. Well, okay, yeah, he was those things. But the main thing he claimed to be was God who came in the flesh on that rescue mission and died on the cross for us. This is God in the flesh. No other credible world uh, re religious leader uh, has been able to show that he's anything close to that. Seven times I can count of, he said that he was going to die, and he described in detail about his arrest and, and um, uh, torture, crucifixion, and three days later he'd rise. Not an easy promise to keep. And he did. Everybody else's bones, long, long since turned to dust. It was a great moment. Some of it had to do with what was shared. A lot of it had to do with how it was shared. <clears throat> a couple weeks later, there are 12 of us at pizza and tennis. We're at a long table. Um, and I, every, there were three pitchers of beer on the table, and I had my Diet Pepsi like always. And I was near the end, on this end down here, near the end, and a lady at the very head of the table up here, over everybody talking, said, Hey, Seth, is the reason you don't drink beer because you're a pastor? And all heads went. <laughs> I said, no, that's not the reason I don't drink beer. And um, she said, well, why don't you drink beer then? I said, well, there's really two answers. Uh, when I was a junior in college, I got close, I think, to be becoming an alcoholic just enough that it scared me. I'd heard enough stories about this from my parents and parents' friends that that caught my attention. But really that led me to the second reason why I don't drink. Just sort of almost like Jesus creating interest, just kind of paused. Somebody said, what was that other reason? I said, well, in my junior year in college, I thought I had all, I shared my testimony. I thought I had everything I was to make make life work, and you've heard me share about all the things, inside, outside, you know, all that stuff, and wrong approach to life, and the internal joy and internal peace I was missing, and um, it wasn't until I realized Jesus was real and, and needed to be uh, to drive my life that, uh, that I was going to deal with, with how I'm going to live my life, and just kind of paused again, and I talked about inner joy and inner peace, you know, quite a bit about that. And the lady at the very end of the, end of the table again said, well, well, after you let Jesus start to drive your life, did you start to have that same inner peace and inner joy? And everybody was like, I said, well, you know, I have problems like everybody. But the answer to your question is yes. The guy right across from me was a 45-year-old attorney, very handsome man, graduate of USC, USC Law School, living with his 30-year-old secretary who was one of the most beautiful women I had ever seen. And he turns to her and in front of everybody says, that's what we've been looking for in six months of counseling. Uh, about a month later, I asked Richard, uh, after one tennis night, I said, Richard, have you ever read your Bible? Do you have a Bible? Would you ever read it? He said, no, nope, never read a Bible. Don't even have one. Would you ever be interested in reading it? I could help you with it if you want. 
He said, well, maybe. I said, uh, if I wanted to learn law, of which I know very little, except for one political science class, if I came to your law office and I just started with the first book up at the top of your shelf and started working across, would that be an effective way for me to learn the law? And of course he laughed and he said, oh no. I said, but I'll bet you already know a book in your library that would be perfect for somebody like me. He said, yeah, there's several. I said, the Bible's kind of like that. It's a, it's a library of 66 books. And if, if you've never read the Bible, you don't want to start way up in the top left-hand corner and work your way through. But there is a book that would be really helpful to kind of the, the short version of this. He said, really? Yeah, I said, it's by a guy named John, and, and he wrote kind of a short biography of Jesus. He said, I think you'd find it fascinating. He said, well, yeah, I guess I'd be interested in reading that. I'll tell you what. What, um, what if I came over to your house for about 30 minutes on Thursday? And we'll just start. We'll, we'll see what it, what it says. Uh, I'm not going to tell you anything or cram anything down your road. It's for you to read and investigate and see what you think. How's 30 minutes? He said, great. I went over there. I had a, a good news for modern man. It's the simplest English translation I knew of at the time. And uh, we start. He's got a Bible. I've got one. John 1. I said, all right, Richard, why don't you just read out loud the first five verses of John 1. So he starts in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he stops and he says, hey, wait a minute. This says the good news, at the, the title, the good news according to John. Was John a real guy or is this just the title of the, of the, of the book? So I flip, I said, let's, look, let's flip back to a letter he wrote. We looked at 1 John 1. Uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have heard, which we have looked upon, which we have touched, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it, and we testified to it. Remember who I'm talking to? An attorney. He says, oh, he was an eyewitness. Bingo. Back to John 1. <laughs> he reads a few more verses, and then he stops, and he looks, and he says... Hey, what are, what are all the big numbers and what are all these little numbers? We kind of just kind of worked through the first 18 verses. We started at 7.30, 8 o'clock. I said, all right, Richard, we're done. He said, we don't have to be done yet. Yes, we do. I told you 30 minutes and, and, and that's, that's going to be it. You, but do you want to do this again? He said, yeah, how about next Thursday? I'll be here. So we went through, we went through the rest of John 1, John 2, um, we got to John 3, the Nicodemus, you must be born again. So we're sitting at his dining room table, and it's nighttime. And uh, we're reading through this, and he gets to the part about you must be born again. He said, I've heard of that. I've heard of that. Well, what do you think it means? I really don't know. I have no idea. If you were to venture a guess, what would you think it is? He said, well... Does it mean that somehow you climb back in your mother's womb? <laughs> I said, you know, it's funny you should come up with that answer. Read on. <laughs> he reads on. He goes, hey, that's what Nicodemus thought. I said, yeah, and he's, and he's a Bible scholar. He said, but that wasn't the right answer, was it? That, no, 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 no. So born again, born again, what does that mean? So we get down to the part about where Jesus says, you see, the wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it's come from or where it's going. And uh, I said, why do, you, why do you think he uses that? He said, well, it sounds like an illustration. Yeah? What's he illustrating? Born again, wind, back. He said, I don't know. Now, his curtains were pulled back in the dining room. You could see out on the patio and onto the lake where his, his condo backed up to. And it was a windy night. Trees were. So I said to him, is it, is it windy tonight? He said, yeah. He said, I said, how do you know? He said, well, I can, I can see the wind. I said, can you? He said, well, no, I can't see the wind. But you know it's windy. He said, yeah, because the trees are blowing. Same thing. Um, so what, is, what does this mean related to born again? So this is what he comes up with. He says, it sounds like there's something that happens inside the human heart that's invisible. 
but you should be able to see the effects of it. Please stop calling. We have a winner. Please stop calling. We have a winner. We well, said, well, what effects should you see in somebody who's born again? Good question. So we turn back to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Read this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He said, you mean that's the effects that you're supposed to see in somebody that's born again? I said, yeah, over time. He said, I don't know anybody like that except you. Which, uh, full disclosure, <laughs> I think I was his only Christian friend. So don't, don't too much ooh and ah there. I mean, you know, <laughs> don't read too much into that. Now, a couple weeks after this, uh, some of the ladies in the group wanted to have a big birthday party because apparently a lot of them had a birthday in the same month. So we went to a different pizza place after tennis. There were about 25 of us in this big, probably about almost the size of this room, ringed around the room. And one of the guys, uh, very gregarious, outward uh, extrovert attorney said, hey, not everybody knows everybody in this room. So let's just go around the circle and introduce each other. So one, I'm Bill, I'm a, I work with such and such firm. Uh, I've been in Irvine or Newport Beach for a time, and i got two kids, and I'm divorced. I'm Gail. I work at such and such law firm. I don't have any children, uh, and I'm divorced. I'm uh, Jimmy. I've been here 20 years. I work with such and such a firm. Uh, I've got three kids, and I'm divorced. We got the person number six, and so far, all six have been divorced at least once. And one of the guys in the group could feel the tension sort of rising here. I mean, it was uncomfortable, it was awkward. And uh, he just blurted out, good God, has everybody in this room been divorced at least once? And it was as quiet as quiet could be. We're all looking around like this, and somebody said, well, Seth hasn't. <laughs> In a room of 25, that's it. All right. Um, can I have 10 more minutes? Okay. Um, well, it might be a little longer than 10. Um, <laughs> You'll see on the next page, endurance, and I put some endurance verses there for you. The reason I put that in is if I have in any way given you the impression that living the Christian life and sowing seeds and being a part of people's lives is an easy venture, please, please do not hear that. This life is a war. Uh, the world of flesh and the de devil, right? your sin nature from, from the, my first talk. Um, every day is a war. It is hard. Um, one of the things that struck me from a, what a few of you have asked me is, what happens when you're spiritually dry? I, and I tried to address a little bit of this in, in John 4 last night about thirst and the different kinds of thirst and the different kinds of hunger. Um, I, I want to talk about the word ache. And if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 8. Uh, this is not in your handout. I did the handouts last week, but, but I, th I, I thought this was important based on the number of people that have, have, set, have talked about this. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings, now remember, he's a Christian talking to Christians. You heard Kelsey's testimony. This is what you're reading right here. It's my testimony too. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation, and then he's going to use the word wait three times in this passage. Here's the first one. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now that'll finally be done when life is over, which means... This is a long wait. For the creation was subjected to frustration. 
He's talking about a, we live in a fallen world. This world is not like it's supposed to be. I have to weed my garden every cotton picking Friday. I have to repeatedly change the oil in my car. I have to keep buying tires for our cars. I have to keep painting the house. I have to keep patching things. But it's not just things. Creation was subjected to frustration, meaning I have to relate to knuckleheads and people have to relate to knuckleheads like me. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And then he says, in hope. Hope. He's going to use this word, hope, seven times in the next handful of verses. Wait and hope. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now usually when we read that passage, we think about creation. We think about typhoons and tornadoes and earthquakes and mudslides and disease. Yes, it's included in there. But we are also creation, people. He's talking about us in our lives. Liberated from its bondage to decay, here is the sin nature. It just drives you and me crazy. The glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right at the present time. Usually we as Christians think, oh yeah, earthquakes and mudslides and, 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 and all of that kind of stuff that just hurricanes and, and I, I want to say, well, yeah. But that, that's not really, really what he's talking about. He's talking about us, about people, that you and I groan. Do you resonate with that word? In your quiet moments when you're by yourself? Can you sense that a groaning in your heart or an ache? I'm using those as, as synonymous terms. Uh, or really ache, and then the groaning is similar to ache, but then groaning is also yearning. It's not just your complaining groaning, but you're yearning. You yearn for something to be different. Groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Uh, for you ladies who have given birth to children, do you understand this? Next in line would be fathers who have said stupid things while they're waiting for their wife to give birth. And then the rest of us, you just know, wow, this seems like forever. Is this baby ever going to come is the idea. Are we ever going to be out of here? Is groaning ever going to be over is the idea. Not only so, but we ourselves who have, we ourselves, so he's, what he's saying here is, you might just think I'm talking about non-Christians or lost people. No, au contraire. Not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Christians, you and me, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. If you get nothing else out of this passage of Scripture, those are your two phrases. Groan inwardly, wait eagerly. Groan inwardly, wait eagerly. The way Paul's writing this is, of course you're going to groan inwardly, but don't just stand there. You wait eagerly. As we e wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, then... Listen to, to the word hope. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Meaning, uh, I think what he's saying is, don't put your hope that I'm going to feel better now and the groaning is going to be done. That's not a good hope. You're going to be a severely disappointed Christian. If, if your hope, I just want to feel better. Why can't I feel closer to Jesus like I want to? Not yet. Who hopes for what he already has? If we hope for what we do not yet have, and then here's his third wait. We wait for it patiently. Now, let me, I, I like the word ache here. And I think there are five different kinds of ache. We usually just think of one. So there's one ache of living in a fallen world. There are times where you just go, oh, Sometimes I just hate my life. 
I hate living in this world. That's this ache, ache number one. Ache number two, if you were in the breakfast talk a couple days ago, uh, I, you're in box four. I'm just so irritated. I'm just so frustrated. He started off this passage with, uh, all creation was subjected to frustration, box four. Uh, so part of my box four is because of me, my box three. Some of this box four frustration and anger is because of the world I live in. That's ache number two, my sin. The third ache we have, and he's inferring in this passage, is our capacity to be full is like this big tank. But our ability to feel full in this life has about this much coffee in it. Therefore, we wait eagerly and hope. A day is coming when this tank will be full the way I want it to. So when you feel this ache, this is not necessarily, what's wrong with me and what's wrong with my spirituality? This is just how it is until we get to heaven. This is ache number three. Ache number four. This is a good ache. God, it, for some reason, has designed us in such a way that he rarely allows us, it seems to me, to feel close to him the way we want to. Sometimes that happens, and I'm happy about that. But generally, that's a pretty rare thing. Now, why would God, who could make that different, why, why is that seen to be fairly normative? I think because he's using the difference between the capacity to want him and the little of experience that I have of feeling him to increase our hunger for him, to propel us to seek him, and to drive up the value of seeking him as our first hope through all the different things, whether we're aware of it or not, that we do have placed hope in to make life work. And that is a long trek. That's hope number, or ache number four, to seek God. The last hope has to do with a hunger for heaven. And this is, of course you're going to ache, like the, the uh, living in a fallen world. And God uses this in order to, I think, unvelcro us from our, the different hopes we have of making life work now and to start to velcro us more to the hope of heaven that we'll have one day. The reason I mention all this is because when you live your life, you're going to be tempted to throw all the seed stuff and the stuff that Dan and Pat said, and it's not working for me. And one of the reasons it may seem like it's not working for you is this element of ache and groaning. It's one of the reasons why I'm so thankful for the scriptures. Well, as we're getting close here, um, there's a picture I want to show you. See if you recognize who this fellow is. As you can tell, Father Time has not been particularly kind with me. <laughs> to the best of my ability, and with every modern convenience I know that I have, except for surgery, this is about as good as it gets. <laughs> right? But roughly, this is about the time I became a Christian, roughly. For the last 44 years, I have slogged through the Christian life, the battles, the wars, the fights with myself, my own sinful nature, have tried to sow seed, um, and I'm very, I'm very happy to still be uh, in the, in, on the field and with people sowing seed. However, I have had plenty of friends of mine who, let's go to our next picture. Uh, that is a shipwreck who somewhere along the line did something incredibly stupid, usually this happens in midlife, uh, that torpedoes their life. It may torpedo part of their family. It may torpedo all of their family. It, may tor it torpedoes their witness. It torpedoes their effectiveness. And so much of the seed sowing that had been effective for years or decades it rocks people. So in addition to sowing and, and uh, all the stuff we've talked about, you have also got to pursue holiness and honor in your life. 
and that is a fight. Over the years, again and again and again, I have had to put, build boundary walls and fences, uh, borders, a moat, a drawbridge around me, partly to protect me from me, mostly, and to protect me from others who might want to do something stupid with me. And I am certain I have the propensity to do something incredibly stupid, even after all these years. Um, we're going to close with a, a little exercise. Josiah, if you would help me. Uh, this is a pack of seeds. Uh, seeds of influential living. And I want to give you, uh, Josiah's uh, sowing some seeds for you. And during the next few minutes, I've asked the, the band just to come up and play something quietly for us. And if you would take up seed sowing. But I'd like to challenge you with this. Come get a pack of seeds. Take it back to your, your, your seat. And the challenge is this. Put this somewhere where you can see it. Not, you know, not under the pile of files and books. On your dresser, maybe. Or if you work on your... At your Every time you sow a seed in any form that we've talked about yesterday and today, take a seed out of this packet and keep at it until the packet is empty. All right, now we're just going to give you a few minutes, and I know it's kind of crowded in here, uh, so try to do this in about two minutes, all right? I want to finish with a poem, but I, before I read the poem, I want you to use your imagination. Put your imagination cap on. I want you to imagine that you've died, and in the next instant, you find yourself in a horse-driven carriage in heaven with a driver who's taking you through beautiful rolling country and some forested trees, and you are seeing gardens that you have never seen before in your life. The driver points up ahead and he says, I see your mansion up there. So I'm prepared for you. But as you're driving by the gardens and you see all these flowers, there's something unique about the flowers that you notice. And then as a lot of the blooms that you look at look a lot like the face of someone you knew back here that's still alive. That you had a relationship with. That you sowed some type of seed with all through the course of your life. You're about to come, the carriage, over the stone bridge outside of your mansion. 
As you get closer to the mansion, you pass by the carriage house. You get out of your carriage and walk up into the mansion and begin to walk into every room. And we'll end with this poem, if I can get through it. Do you see the faces of people you loved in the flower blooms of his gardens above? Clatter over the stone bridge. They all want to see you. Enter through the narrow gate the last time through. In the library, reading back through the old book. Obedience was worth it on every page you look. Paintings of people you loved. Portraits on walls. A crown of thorns and crowns for you in the halls. The hearth in the great room, such rich decor, colorful tapestries, beauty galore. Golden candelabras alive in flame, each candle lit when you shared his name. The drawing room filled, people full of life, because you gave your heart and shared your life. The banquet hall's ready, name cards in place. Each chair ready for someone you helped find grace. Reminiscing in the drawing room. Victories won, what often looked like doom. Battles of yore, hard battles won. The times when you laid your desires down. The master of the manor strides through the door. Smiles because of joys you share and what's in store. Seeds sown, love shown in conversations that mattered. Our Redeemer God took hearts and made them untattered. Glad remembering, grateful recounting, grand realizing, making joyful singing, filling every room and every heart. Let's pray together. Father, we long and ache for the day when that will be true and what we will enjoy for the rest of eternity. But we know that we are prone to be shipwrecked, every one of us. And if our pride gets in the way, it might happen. Protect us. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to listen to to godly people around us. And at the same time, lift up our eyes to see the great privilege that you've given us to be sowers of seed, laborers in the harvest, and the grand purpose of which you have called us to. Thank mm-hmm. you.